Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I am your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. And whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you're in the right place. My guest this episode is a world-renowned expert on performance. He is the co-author of Peak Performance in the Passion Paradox and the author of The Science of Running. His writing has appeared in Runner's World, Sports Illustrated, and he has been featured in The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and others. As a performance coach, he's worked with executives, entrepreneurs, and athletes. He is also the co-founder of The Growth Equation in his latest book, Do Hard Things. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Steve Magnus. Steve, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Excited to have you on. I love uh, your books. I think the first thing I wanted to kind of wonder, because I'm fascinated by all of your work, but what fascinates you so much about human performance? You know, I think it 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 comes from just kind of my own upbringing and my world I've lived in. I mean, early on, I was fascinated by athletic performance, mostly because I was a runner myself. So I was yeah. like, well, well, how do you get better? Not just like physically with training, but also mentally and psychologically. And then as I've kind of moved in my career is that you've I've really come to realize that performance is performance, and we're just changing what we're applying it to. So the you know, the high level entrepreneur isn't that different than the, you know, high level athlete who's trying yeah. to get fast or stronger or what have you. So I just think it's, I don't know, it's just this kind of fascinating area that is ripe for exploration. And I'm just like anybody else. I'm just trying to figure it out and, and look at how we can do things a little bit better. Love it. I love it. Uh, in one of your earlier books, one of the things that stuck out in peak performance, and I think it's important, we have a lot of you know coaches of student athletes on this podcast, um, but that just right challenge. Um, can you talk about why finding that, especially with, with maybe coaching student athletes at this age, at this day, is such an important thing, and we're trying to build continuous development? Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting. So all this kind of science and research converges on the idea that we, we of course, need to be challenged, right? If we're not challenged, we never grow, we never develop. That applies to everything athletic in terms of doing a hard workout or something to get a little bit better. And it applies to our more intellectual pursuits. So if I want to learn a skill, like I have to challenge. But I think where we often get it wrong is we either challenge ourselves way too little. So it's not actually a challenge. And what happens there is it's, it's like going in the weight room and lifting. I don't know. Something is really easy, right? Well, okay. You're working a little bit, but are you actually going to give that stimulus for that muscle to grow? Probably not. On the flip side, I think the other thing that we often do is try to go in to use that analogy, go into the weight room and be like, okay, I need, I'm trying to get stronger today. I'm trying to get better. And then we try and lift a weight that we can barely handle or can't really handle. Yeah. And then the result is we don't grow with it there either because the stimulus is overloaded. So either we get injured or we can't, we can't actually lift the thing. So 
what we're looking for is that that sweet spot, which is that kind of just right challenge or just manageable challenge where it's like just enough where we're stretching our capabilities a little bit, but it's within that it's within those capabilities. And that's important for a couple of reasons. A is if you look at the research, that's where we're most motivated. Right. Because if we can't accomplish something at all, or if it's too easy, our motivation is, is, is going to be nothing. The reason is because it's like, if it's too easy, we're going to be like, Hey, this is a piece of cake. No problem. Like I can shut my mind off and get this through. If it's too difficult, our brain's going to be like, Hey, why are you trying at this thing? You have no chance or no shot at accomplishing your right. goal. So it's really that sweet spot. And that applies to every, every kind of pursuit or endeavor you're looking at is if we can find that sweet spot, our motivation is going to grow. And then like our progress, we're, we're more likely to have a sustainable and long-term progress if we're kind of in that zone as well. Sure. Uh, your, your most recent book, Do Hard Things, uh, love the way it just modernizes what I think mental toughness can be and how it shapes it. But, um, you know, with mental toughness, there's always that discomfort, the uncomfort, that zone. Can you talk about how that sweet spot also impacts our ability to develop resilience and grit? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because it it transcends both bo books that you're talking about there. But, um, and it, you know, to here I'll go to the research on on what we call stress inoculation. So if I wanted to, you know, deal with something stressful, or let's say I was afraid of heights, I had a big scare, you know, fear of heights. What a therapist would do is say, okay, we've got to put you in that situation. We're not going to take you up to, you know, the empire state building and stick you at the top. We're going to take you one story, two stories up and say, Hey, look over the ledge a little bit somewhere where it's scary but it's not that big of a challenge. It's something that you can handle. Sure. And, this, and the same thing applies to when we're trying to create this idea of toughness is too often, I think we get this kind of sweet spot wrong. We think, oh, if we just throw people into the, into the deep end of the pool, they'll figure out how to swim. Well, for some people who are naturally gifted swimmers, like they might figure it out. But for most of us, like we need to at least be taught some sort of basics of understanding how to swim or the tools or techniques that we need to use before we actually do that hard thing or that difficult thing and get thrown into the deep end. Yeah. So when we're, we're looking at developing resilience, again, it's that kind of just right challenge of, okay, how do we, how do we embrace that discomfort? But in a way where we're challenging people, where they still have a shot to succeed. Now, they might not succeed all of the time, right. but they still have a shot. Because if they don't, if we just throw them into the deep end, what happens and we have no chance of succeeding? We're not developing toughness. We're developing survival. Yeah. And survival is different because when all we want to do is survive, we'll cope with with things that just get us through that moment yep. that probably aren't the best long-term ways to cope over over the long haul definitely definitely uh, one of the other ideas i think you paint such a, a good picture of and do hard things is uh this idea of choice and i think so many times we kids at a young age get overcoached and almost become robotic uh in what they're doing but can you talk about how the element of choice in performance is really what kind of helps us build 
that that grit and build some mental toughness? Yeah. So this is really fascinating. And the research actually goes back to they were studying um, prisoner of war and how they how they handled, mm. you know, being a POW. And what they found is that, you know, uh, some people were able to survive and, and get through it and all that stuff. And some even with absence of like a serious disease or a real serious disease, you know, just fell apart and ultimately sometimes led to death. And they actually had a term for it. They called it give up itis. And the reason they called it give up itis is because they kind of all the doctors eventually said like, Hey, we don't know why these people are succumbing besides it's a stressful event. But one of the distinctions is they feel like they have lost control over the Mm. situation. And the people who maintain control were able to not necessarily thrive as a prisoner, but they were able to get through. And this has, they've seen this similar thing in, in the Holocaust survivors and other survivors of harrowing things. And it basically goes like this, is that when we have some sense of control or some choice in the matter, it's almost like it flips a switch of persistence in our brain mm. where it says, oh, there's still a chance. I still have some input here. And in the most harrowing situations, for example, the Holocaust, you know, there's this wonderful story from Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor, who basically was given the advice of stand tall and, and shave. And that was the key to survival. And you said back, well, why to stand tall and shave? What does that matter? Well, it gives you some sense of control in a situation where all of the rest of control is taken away because you can still stand tall. You can still shave and look, you know, I guess halfway decent. If you do that kind of turns on that persistence muscle. And it turns out we see the same thing in performance uh, in other areas. One of my favorite examples of this is actually in sport where often you see athletes adopt like rituals yeah. But before performing. So my favorite example as a kid growing up, growing up in the nineties and two thousands was the, the Boston Red Sox player, Nomar Garcia Parra before he went up to bat, like he'd swing his bat like three times, touch his helmet, like pull on his gloves twice, and then he'd be ready to go. And if you look at, well, why do athletes do that? Well, it's pretty simple. That ritual gives us a sense of, Hey, I'm still in charge here. Like I can still go through this routine. Yeah. And if I go through my, this routine, my body is going to be like, okay, like you have some sense of choice or control in this situation. Yeah. So the wonderful thing about choice and control is we don't have to feel like we're in control of the entire situation. I don't fe- have to feel like, you know, I'm going to walk up to the batter's box and get a hit no matter what. No, it's a small bit. If I can get a small bit to remind my brain that says like, hey, you're in charge. You have some control over the effort you're giving or the things you're doing to prepare. That kind of flips that switch again and like allows us to perform in some very stressful and difficult environments. Yeah. When we think about control, like we just, you know, we get, even if it just gives us a sense of control before we step into a batter's box or step to the racing line, uh, it's the old, you know, maxim is control what you can control, right? It's psych, sports psych 101. Um, but why is it so challenging, I think, in our modern era to, to 
not control, <laughs> focus on those distractions and the things that, you know, are not in our control. And what kind of advice do you give to kind of maybe quiet the distractions for athletes in a noisy world? Yeah, that's it. You know, I think you hit the nail on the head with it's a noisy world. So if you thought about, I don't know, 25 years ago, the distractions were much smaller. The world was much more, I'd call it local, right? Think about kids nowadays. Um, if you, you strike out, you know, in a game, you miss the winning catch, you like, you know, fade and miss the state meet in, in track or cross country or whatever it is. It used to be that that's just like your close friends and maybe your parents and your coaches knew now, like those results are instant. They're everywhere. Yep. Everybody's got to know on social media, you know, all that good stuff. So it's essentially like. We've taken a world where we used to be like the kid playing at the, you know, little league baseball game and he was on the mound and like a handful of people now. Now it feels like everybody's, you know, on the mound in a major league baseball game, right? That's what it feels like because of the the kind of yeah. world we live in. And I think what that does is that puts um, higher levels of pressure expectations and increases the rate of those distractions that you talked about. Yeah. So what advice I would give is pretty simple is that this ability to kind of like stay focused and keep those distractions at bay, think of it like a mental muscle is you get to train it. And the good news is simple things work. So there's some wonderful research that shows that just being alone in your head, that could be sitting, that could be going for a walk, that could be whatever, for a couple minutes of day, for a couple weeks, will train your ability to focus and your attention. Meaning your attention doesn't get grabbed as easily, you're more in charge of where you direct it. Yeah. The other thing I would say on that is look for simple paths for this. So Instead of when you're standing in, in, in a line at the movie theaters or to get lunch or whatever have you, instead of reaching for your phone for distraction, use that as an opportunity to sit there and train, meaning, hey, I'm going to leave my phone in my pocket or whatever have you. I'm not going to, I'm going to be bored, essentially. Yeah. Because boredom, what is boredom? But like being okay with that, like discomfort. And not giving in to, oh, there's some shiny objects over here that could fill my time in a, in a we'll say, better way. Right. Like, be okay being bored. And all I would say is look for those small moments of how you train that mental muscle so that when it really matters, when you're focused, when you need to be focused, like you have that ability to shift that attention and, and latch on to what actually matters versus being distracted by the shiny objects and the you know, the social media and all that good stuff. Yeah. You talked about, you know, leaving your phone in your pocket, you know, stepping aside to be bored for a second. How do where do you think mindfulness comes in when it, cause like, you know, you gotta be mindful to like, okay, I'm going to be bored. I gotta be mindful of my desire for, to look at my shiny object and my desire to, to resist it. Um, how do you see mindfulness playing with mental toughness and, you know, creating some of those flexes per se. I, I think it plays a very large part because like, again, I think it's one of those things. If you look at the modern world, um, it kind of trains us not to be mindful. Like we, we were losing a lot yeah. of those opportunities where we used to 
kind of maybe develop this muscle naturally. Um, I mean, I even think about it on, on my own, in my own sport of running as like, you know, back in the day, you couldn't take your phone or some device to listen to music or podcasts. Like you were just stuck, like being alone in your head. Yeah. 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 now it's like it's easy to and i get it like it it sometimes helps with motivation but like you were forced to train that yeah so now you know i think mindfulness is great if you practice that in meditation if but what i always tell people is mindfulness is very simple it is sitting it is being alone with your thoughts feelings emotions and then just noticing them instead of like distracting or reacting to them yeah and you could do this in any way, you know, um, with some high school students I worked with, I told them simply, I was like, you got a dog? And they're like, yeah. I said, great. Every afternoon or evening, I want you to take your dog for a short walk without any phone or anything like that and just be mindful on the walk. Yeah. And, and that's training. Like, it sounds crazy, but that is like mental training that is going to help you in sport and life or whatever you take on. Yeah, I love it. You were a pretty solid runner. Uh, I, you know, you you break four minute mile once close. I I ran a four or one mile, so I came that's, just shy of breaking it. Yeah, that's, that's that's dang fast. And I know you you've uh, spent some time coaching around Carl Lewis. Is that right? Yeah. They you know they say success leaves clues, but you know, growing up as a kid that was a sprinter and seeing Carl, what what are some clues maybe that uh, to his success or coaching that you've uh, picked up along the way? Oh man, you know, no one's actually asked me this, but I think it's a brilliant question. I was, I got to, I was fortunate. I got to spend eight, uh, seven or eight years with Carl watching him see what he does every day. And, and here's what I think he does really well is that he sees a vision. He states, this is how we're going to get there. And then he follows through on those steps. Like mm-hmm. it is like, I remember, and I'll give you an example of this. I remember the first season I got to work with him on, at the University of Houston. I remember the first season they joined, we were a pretty good track team. We were maybe, I don't know, 25th to 30th in the nation. You know, pretty good. He walks in and he says, in four years, I want us to, you know, be in the hunt to win a national title. And Granted, like we were not the quote unquote power five or what have you. We didn't have the resources of the the big schools or, yeah. or what have you. And he's just saying, this is it. But in addition to that, he said, here's how we're going to do it. <laughs> here's my plan. Yeah. Here's my plan. And, you know, at the, I'll be honest, at the beginning, I was like, all right, I don't know about this. Like, this is kind of, can we pull this off? But, you know, it, it, I think it was almost exactly four years later, like, we were in the hunt and we got third and then we got second and we got third. We didn't quite pull it off, but like three for three seasons in a row, we were, we were top three. Yeah. And, and what I saw him there is that ability to have that clear vision and then that, that plan and then go to work on that plan. So the other thing, I'll give you one more clue that, that I think Carl left yeah. is that he, again, you know, he's one of the greatest athlete, arguably of the tw- of the 20th century, one of them. Right. I'm watching this guy make recruiting calls to 16, 17 year olds to take time out of his, his day to fly, drive, travel, to sit in high school kids like 
you know, homes and talk to their parents and do the very small things that you might not think that someone who's, I have no idea how much he's worth, but he's, he's well off. He's accomplished yeah. a lot. And he was doing the very small things that matter. Yeah. And he was, he was kind of, it was kind of weird. Cause like you think Carl and you think like, Oh, he's got to have a, a big ego, but like he would pit that ego aside and just be like, I'm going to do what it takes. Like yeah. doesn't matter if you don't know who I am, doesn't matter. Like I'm going to show up and treat you like, you know, like you matter a lot and are someone that I'm going to invest time in. And if I say I'm going to invest time in you, I am. Yeah. And that, that always was extremely impressive to me. When you talk about that, you know, you mentioned about going to know the kids and doing those, that detailed work, you know, right after talking about the ambitious goals of being a, a top, you know, national chasing a national championship. Can you talk about how that accelerated maybe some of that performance um, as far as, you know, the, the attention to detail and the attention to the people and the relationship? Yeah. You know, I, I think it was, it was a big thing. Um, what I would say there is that attention to detail on it was, it was, and what I would say is it was a real cl clear focus on what actually mattered and what needed to get done. So he was very clear eyed and everybody was of like, this is what it's going to take. And like, this is what we need to do. And instead of whenever we face a roadblock, it wouldn't be like, ah, like, you know, that didn't work or like, we couldn't get this athlete. It would be like, okay, how do we find a way through this? Okay. Like, how do we figure out how to do this in a slightly different way or a better way? And I think that mattered a lot. And then I think the relationship part it was a, another real big thing part of, uh, to our success is especially that team. If you looked at the first team that the, the first time we kind of broke through and got third at, uh, at nationals is we had a diverse array of, of athletes. So track and field is, is basically it's like bringing many teams together because you have like yeah. sprinters and distance and throws and jumpers and like multi-athletes who do everything. And it's like these teams within a teams. And what was really cool is that, you know, Carl and Leroy Burrell was there, like they were able to kind of bring things together and be like, okay, when it comes to the national meet, like, it doesn't matter what event you're doing. It doesn't matter if, you know, who you're coached by or what have you, like we're all showing up to this and in, in, in doing our job and putting in our work for everybody alongside us. And there were just several instances along the way where you could see that like, you know, although, you know, a hundred meter sprinter might not understand the 10,000 meter runners race. Right. Like there was just that mutual respect of like, Oh man, like you're, you're giving it and I'm going to give it too. And I think that's what really, you know, set things apart. That's awesome. Yeah. Talk about, you know, coaching a little bit there. And one of the things you bring up in do hard things is this uh, study of MBA coaches from 2000 to 2006 um, found it fascinating. Cause sometimes we think, Oh, coach them hard, love, you know, love them hard, whatever. But uh, can you talk a little bit about how, that study and how NBA players, some of the, even the best at their sport on how they are coached mattered on how their trajectory, their career transpired. Yeah. So this was one of my favorite studies that I came across because 
you're looking at that. You're talking about the best athletes on, on the planet in basketball, NBA. And what they did is they studied, it was several years of data looking at performance um, trajectories in the NBA. And they classified, they looked at all the coaches and classified the coaches based on their coaching style, where they kind of like that old school, like authoritarian, I'm going to be a dictator style, or were they more, I don't know, maybe like a, a Steve Kerr, for example, now, sure. where it's just like more kind of, you know, players, all that stuff. And, and what they found was interesting is that those kind of authoritarian dictator style coaches is whenever a player was coached by that coach, their performance tended to decline. And then their number of aggressive or technical fouls tend to go, to go up. Mm. And the fascinating part of this study was it wasn't just for that one year or however many years they were coached by this authoritarian coach. You saw that tick down in performance, up in aggression, last for the rest of their career. Mm. And I think that that sends such a kind of powerful message that we have, if you're a coach, you have the ability to impact players long beyond, you know, when you stop coaching them yeah. and you can either do it in the positive regard, or you can send them towards this kind of negative style or this negative regard, which kind of can hamper them and hold them back. So mm -hmm. You know, although it wasn't studied, my question always is if we're if we're seeing this shift in performance at the highest level with grown adults, you know, what are we going to what what could we see at the at the, you know, high school or lower level where it's like that impact to me is even greater and probably reflects like, well, are you, you elevating these kids or are you, you know, pushing them down and, and telling them or treating them out of fear or punishment or whatever have you, which might uh, have a lasting negative uh, effect. No doubt. No doubt having a, an effect at the youth and high school <laughs> collegiate level. So on some regard, no, I would love to be fascinated to know the details. <laughs> um, it, amongst the the book, there's a, a bunch of, you know, the toughness maximums that you kind of pull out there, but one that definitely caught my attention too, that I wanted you to talk a little bit more about as we wrap up is uh, purpose is the fuel that allows you to be tough. You talk a little bit, and we always know your why, you know, everything, but you know, why is it our purpose such an important piece of fuel? Yeah. So, you know, there's actually some uh, interesting theories and research in the field of exercise physiology that essentially says this is that we always have more, we never go to our, our limit. And there's a good reason for that because our brain is protective, right? It doesn't want us to go to absolute zero or run out of fuel or, you know, go until we have nothing left. Because if we do, we are literally in danger because if we have no fuel <laughs> in our muscles, like our, yeah. our body's in danger, right? Yeah. We're, we're going to the hospital. So what, what the latest science tells us is we get shut down before that, right? But there's one thing that allows us to go a little bit deeper and that's that sense of purpose. And the reason is pretty simple is because think about it. If your child was in danger or you see a, th a big threat to your child, what have you is you're going to risk your life more so, right? Yeah. You're going to be that parent who figures out how to lift the car off the child or what have you, 
right? Those stories that we all hear. And there's actually a little bit of truth to that. Why? Because your brain's doing the calculus. It's saying, hey, this matters a whole lot. So I'm going to risk, I'm going to risk my own health and safety a bit more because this matters a, a whole lot. And the same thing to a degree, we're not going to push all the way to zero, but the same thing to a degree happens if we have a purpose, especially if it's a purpose greater than ourselves for why we're doing the thing that we're doing. Yeah. It's why teams tend to elevate above just if I was doing it selfishly as an ind individual. Yeah. It's, it's also why you see, you know, the, the average Joe do marathons, you know, sign up for their first marathon, why they often raise money for a charity or to support cancer research or something like that. Why? Because that, that little extra oomph of saying, oh yeah, I'm doing this for a good cause that is more yeah. than just, I want to finish this. That actually does help you get through the difficult task. Yeah. So although there is some cliche around that, there's some deep science of, you know, make it, make it meaningful, have a purpose, and that will help your performance. I love it. As we kind of wrap up, uh, coaches out there, listeners, student athletes, what would be, you know, low hanging fruit, simple one or two tips. If you wanted to go out and build your resilience and mental toughness, you've given a couple good ideas, go walk the dog without your phone, but maybe what are one or two other more practical ones, maybe for some coaches or students listening? Yeah. So number one, I think a lot of it is mindset. So whenever you see a challenge, like embrace that discomfort. And again, this could be all aspects of your life. It could be in a workout. It could be in signing up to, you know, do that speech or play or what have you, or whatever kind of scares you a little bit, go towards those things that scare you a little bit. And then the other thing that I would say that maybe is a little bit more practical is like, occasionally in, in, in workouts or whatever have you let yourself go to that bad place and then like try and see if you can get yourself out of it. Mm -hmm. So how you talk to yourself, how you approach like the fatigue or emotions or like whatever is coming with you. Like the only way we get better at dealing with it is like being in that space. So allow yourself to go there sometimes fail but like develop those skills that, that often will, you know, benefit you more than when you're actually in kind of a game scenario where it actually matters. <laughs>